Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, I think one of the most practical things on a on a smartphone are the maps. Whether you use um, Apple Maps or Google Maps or Waze, uh, those things are great because what they do is they tell you what's down the road. Uh, you know, uh, you can route yourself to uh, Fort Worth and it'll tell you there's traffic on I-30 when you're going through the middle of Dallas and... Uh, It'll uh, tell you that maybe there's a stopped vehicle five miles up the road and all that stuff. It's, it's good to have travel advisories, isn't it? It's good to know what's coming. We all like to look at the weather because we want to know what tomorrow's weather is going to bring. Can I mow the lawn or can I pick up the pine needles? Oh, good, it's raining. I don't have to do that again, you know. So, I mean, that's, that's important for us. It, it just helps to be prepared to know what's coming up. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some travel advisories that Jesus issued to his disciples, because for the first time, Jesus is going to send them out to do his work. And, uh, you know, that is one of the things that we often think about is the fact that we are sent out. You know, when you leave here, you're supposed to go be salt and light in this community, You're supposed to go back in that house and be a Christ-like person functioning in that family. Uh, That's how God sends us. That's where God sends us. And uh, we need to know what it's going to be like. Gives us some heads up. That's what Jesus does in a passage like this. So for the first time, we're going to see Jesus send his people out. But he doesn't just send them out cold turkey. He gives them some insight. So... If you've got your Bible to open to Matthew uh, 10, what I really want you to do is to look at chapter 9 at the very end of it, because what you're going to see here is Jesus is basically talking to him about his perception of how things are going. Now, remember, we're, we're in the part of Matthew where basically they're vetting Jesus. Jesus has offered himself as the king who's got a kingdom to install, institute, and the people theoretically are deciding, do we want him? Do we really believe he's the Messiah? Do we really believe he's the one that's been promised since the Garden of Eden? And so they're having to decide. And so Jesus is giving them every opportunity. And so he's preaching, he's doing miracles, he's he's telling them, this is who I am. And look at chapter 9, verse 35. It's right there at the end of chapter 9. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues. A synagogue was basically a church in the Old Testament. It's a gathering place where they'd come together to worship and learn and all that. He was teaching them in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He was doing all the things necessary to help them see and recognize who he was. He's the king that has come to institute the kingdom. And look at verse 36. This is, this is so good. 
seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion on them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, as Jesus was going around Galilee, and Galilee had probably a hundred different little villages in it, big territory. As he's going around preaching, teaching, doing some miracles, I mean, as he looked at the people, he just had to feel sorry for them because they were in chaos. I mean, they were leaderless. They were sheep without a shepherd. And, you know, as I was reading that, I sat and I thought, what would Jesus think if he showed up to North America in 2022 and just looked at our nation, not necessarily our particular church but or any particular church, but he just saw us as a culture. And he'd say, it is sad. These people don't know up from down. They don't know whether marriage is for till death do us part or if it's just till we have a fight. They don't know whether, you know, this gender is it or am I some other gender inside this body? I mean, we, there's so many basic things that are now being reconsidered. And, and it's like, you know, generally speaking, our culture, it's lost. It's lost. And if Jesus saw that about the people of Galilee, you know, he would certainly say that about us. But look at verse 37. What does he say to his closest disciples? He said, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Wow, isn't that amazing? He looked at them, and I'm sure they, like I would say, and maybe you would say too, they were saying, what a mess. These people are lost as a skunk. And Jesus looked at them and said, what an opportunity. Um, you know, next time you watch the news and you see all the stuff that's on there and you see all this stuff of all this change in our nation, don't get mad. Maybe you should get a little compassionate and maybe you ought to get a little optimistic and say, boy, if there's ever anyone that needs the Lord, it's, it's this 2022 generation culture. I mean, Jesus didn't look at him and get disgusted. And I confess, I do get disgusted. Maybe you do too. Jesus looked at him and he got compassionate. And Jesus didn't look at him and get pessimistic and say, man, the place is going to hell in a handbasket. He got He looked at him and said, whoa, what an opportunity for the gospel. We just need more volunteers. And look at verse 38. This is... You know, this is pretty convicting stuff if you let it sink in, even though I'm moving fast here. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. He just said the harvest is plentiful. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And, you know, I, I sat and I thought about that. Do I pray that God would raise up people out of our church family who are going to go do something about it? who are going to get involved and get next to some of these folks that are just so messed up and try to help them see the truth of the gospel. I mean, all those kids that just left. I mean, we as a church need to be praying that some of them 
will rise up and maybe in a full-time way spend the majority of their time, the rest of their life, telling people about Jesus, doing things to, to implement biblical values. You know, I, I mean, just let me just challenge you. If you're a parent and you've got kids, or if you're a grandparent, what do you aspire to them to do? I mean, sure, we all want them to go out and get a big job and make good money so that, you know, the system keeps floating and there is money in the pot for us when we get to start taking some out of it. But, I mean, really, is that the highest, best value of our kids? I mean, you know, maybe God's calling some of them to go to one of these places that gets Operation Christmas Child boxes someplace in some developing country where, I mean, they've never even heard of Jesus Christ, let alone all the other stuff that we know so much about. You know, we need to be praying. Well, look at this. This is kind of interesting. Jesus basically in that paragraph said, man, there are volunteers needed. And then I'm just going to use a Megan uh, comment here. You know what Jesus does? He voluntells a few people what they need to do. I'd never heard that term until I met Megan Hensley. I'll say, hey, we need someone to do that. And she goes, well, I'll go voluntell someone that, you know. Look at that, verse 1 of chapter 10. And having summoned his 12 disciples, it's like as they've been going around, there was 12 guys in particular that, that had kind of gotten a little closer to him and he had maybe spent a little bit more time with them. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the name of those 12 apostles, notice that initially they were 12 disciples, but he's given them authority and now they're 12 apostles. What is the basic, simplest definition of apostle? It is one sent with authority. And so here's the 12 apostles, Simon, who everyone calls Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and his little brother, John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, otherwise known as Nathaniel, Simon, the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after he instructed them. And here's what I want you to notice. Jesus picks these 12 he gives them some authority, and he's going to send them out. What are they going to go out and do? They're going to, they're going to preach the kingdom. They're going to do some healing. They're going to continue to do the work of Jesus Christ in helping people recognize the king's come. He's ready to institute the kingdom. It's like we're vet, you're vetting Jesus, trying to figure out, is he really legit? And Jesus said, you know what? We're going to now have... Twelve teams scattering the news. You know, or maybe send them out two by two. It's not mentioned here, but he did do that sometimes. So we're going to have six teams, plus I'll continue to do it. But notice what he does. In verse 5, it says he sent them out, but after he instructed them. Well, where are the instructions? That's what verse 5, halfway through, all the way to the end of the chapter is. Those are Jesus' instructions to those 
12 apostles. And then see verse 1 of chapter 11. And it came about when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he departed from there to continue teaching and preaching in the cities. And presumably they, the 12, went out and did the same. And obviously they must have had it a designated time. We're going to go do this for three months, six months, and then we'll all rendezvous at, you know, Capernaum by the shore on that date, something like that. So the instructions that Jesus gave to those 12 apostles that he's sending out, that's in verses 5 all the way to the end of the chapter. Do you see that? And let me just emphasize, I've already mentioned it once. This is the first time he's ever done that. First time he's sent someone out. Hey, you go represent me. And here's what I want you to do. Now, this gives us a pretty good opportunity to do something that is really, really crucial for Bible study. Okay. One of the basic principles, and you really ought to write this down. Okay. So you'll remember it. One of the things all of us need to remember, no matter what part of the Bible we're reading, whether it's way over in Genesis or all the way over to Revelation or somewhere in between, all of the Bible is for us, but not all of the Bible was written to us. All of the Bible is for us, but not all of the Bible is to us. So what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be looking at these instructions that Jesus gave to the 12 apostles. Because some of this stuff we're going to look at, and it's like, how does that work? That doesn't, I mean, I'm, that seems like it almost contradicts some of the stuff he said later. And you're right. But if you remember that all of it is for us, but it's not to us, we can get a lot out of it. Because here's the deal. As I listen to what Jesus said to Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Matthew, etc., I can learn a lot about what it's like to serve Jesus. But he told them to do some certain things that he's never told me to do. In fact, he's told me to do just the opposite in some ways. So keep that in mind as we walk through it. Mostly Jesus is talking to those 12 but the thing that's kind of cool about it is after a little bit, and remember, this was written 30 years later, and Matthew's recording it. It's like, it's obvious Jesus was talking to those 12, but I'm sure those 12 are sitting there, and every once in a while, they're looking over their shoulder to be like, he talking to us? Because it's obvious that some of the stuff he said didn't apply to them. It actually applied to someone else. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. So, so look at it. Okay, look at verse 5. He said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Freely you receive, freely give now, don't go acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics. I don't want you packing a whole bunch of luggage and I don't want you going getting a bunch of money out of the bank. I want you going 
on a day-to-day depending on me basis. I mean, you don't even need to take two pairs of underwear. Just one pair is enough. One, one set of sandals, the ones on your feet. And whatever city you go to or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and just go abide with them. You know, Holiday Inn Express didn't exist. Comfort Suites didn't exist. You know, it seems like every hotel in the Bible we ever hear about doesn't have room, but they let you sleep in the barn. But, uh, you know, Jesus said, don't even check the hotels. I just want you to go find someone who really loves me, who loves the Lord and is going to show the hospitality that they're supposed to show and go stay with them. Be a blessing to them. And if that house is worthy, let them greet you. Let your greeting of peace come upon it. If it's not, man, don't worry about it. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your word as you go out of the house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for that city that you're going to. You know, one more thing I want to put a spotlight on. Why did he say just go to the Israelites, the lost nation of Israel, the lost people of Israel. Don't go to Gentiles. Don't go to Samaritans. I mean, the best of my knowledge, that means if, if Peter, James, and John were, if this was all occurring in our day, or if we were living in that day, Peter, James, and John would have walked right past us because we're all a bunch of Gentiles. Maybe some of us are Samaritans and we got a little bit of Jewish blood in it, but they weren't supposed to do that. Why? Because what Jesus is doing in this instance, remember, what he's doing in this instance is he wants them to go to Israel and get them to make a decision about him being the king. Because that's what he's here for. He's the king, come to institute the kingdom. And those Jews, those Israelites, that nation of Israel in that day has to make a decision. Do we think he's the Messiah? Or do we not? And what we're going to see over the next uh, couple Sundays is they basically come to the conclusion, he ain't it. And they're going to reject him. But what Jesus is doing is he's getting his 12 to go out there and force the issue. Sure, Gentiles came to him all the time and Jesus healed them, preached to them, gave them the gospel. But right now in his plan... He's getting Israel to force the issue. He's forcing Israel to make a choice. Is he our king or are we going to reject him? So that's essentially what they were supposed to do. Say this, do that. Go do the works of the kingdom that I've empowered you to do. Heal, raise the dead, fix lepers, all these other things. Preach the kingdom and help these Jews make a decision about me, the king, who's come to offer them the kingdom. Now, what happens there is starting in about verse 16, he's given them these specific instructions 
And what he does is he now says, okay, here's some things to keep in mind. Now, remember, I said all of the Bible is for us, even though not all of it is written to us. And I would basically say that generally speaking, verse 5 through verse 15 was written to us. Or excuse me, was written to those disciples, to those apostles. There's some general things we can grab, but I'm, I'm called to preach to everyone, not just Jews. You're called to preach to everyone, not just Jews. I mean, the Bible is filled with all kinds of information about how you need to be prepared and have a little bit of money in the bank and don't go out and be a burden. I mean, Paul monitored, modeled, you know, being a good steward and not being a burden to the people he preached to. Just almost exactly opposite of this. So all of that was to those guys. You get to verse 16. Now he just is, is going to help them deal with the mentality of it all. And here's where I think you start to see some stuff that really is ap- applicable to us. Because remember, all of us are sent just like these guys are sent. They had a specific mission. We have a mission. And now what we're going to do from verse 16 down to the rest of the chapter, I think we're going to see three basic bits of instructions, three basic things I need to keep in mind and you need to keep in mind. Here's the deal. You're called to represent Jesus Christ. You're called to be salt and light. If you're a school teacher, you're supposed to be Jesus Christ in that class. If you're an engineer, you're supposed to be Jesus Christ in that mill or that factory or wherever you're doing your engineering. If you're a salesman, you're not just there to sell that widget. You're there to represent Jesus Christ. Here's three things to help you do that well. Written to those guys specifically, but we can back it off and see some things. Here's the first one. Here's the first one I think that is important. You need to understand the situation and be wise. And quite frankly, I think we all know the situation, but I think a lot of times we forget it and we certainly don't understand it. Look at at verse 16. Behold, whenever you see the word behold, it's like, hey, guys, now listen up. This is really important. You can just see Peter, James and John kind of nodding off and okay, I, you know, or someone's already fixated on. You mean I can only take one change of underwear? Or I can't take two changes of underwear. And, and Matthew's like freaking out. I mean, he's never not had money in his pocket. And everything he's done has been for to get more gold or silver or whatever. And so, you know, but all of a sudden Jesus said, now behold. Verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You're going to even be brought before governors and kings for my sake. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But but when they deliver you up, I don't want you to be anxious. 
You're going to experience something you probably never experienced before. You're going to, I'm going to give you the words to say. What is he doing there? He is describing the situation that they're in. But you know what? It's the situation we're in. What did Jesus say in John 10? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. There is a dramatic, stark difference between us and the general population. If we're here tonight or today and we have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, a brand new creation. Old things passed away, new things came. There is a a remarkable difference between the person who has trusted Christ and the person who hasn't. And we know that, generally speaking, it seems like there's a lot of folks out there, churchgoers and not, who have not come to the place in their life when they really and genuinely trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We're new creations if, in fact, we've trusted Christ. And a person who is yet to trust Christ is still an old creation. I dare say, except for me, because I know Caitlin's saved and I know Andy's saved. Almost everyone in this room works with a lot of unbelievers. You might, you know, be in a situation like me where you work closely with two believers or five believers or whatever. But I bet generally speaking, most of us, most of you, work with a lot of unbelievers. And there's a real stark difference. Nice people, great people, because we're living in our part of the country. Most of them live kind of the Christian life or at least the pseudo Christian life. But if they've never come to the place in their life when they have trusted Jesus Christ as personal savior, they are an old creation. They are still in sin. And we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is a remarkable difference. And I'm saying all that to explain why Jesus would say, you're going out like a sheep amongst a bunch of wolves. There is nothing inside of an unbeliever that draws them to a life of righteousness. It doesn't mean they don't do a lot of righteousness. Don't mean they do a lot of good stuff. Maybe have a wonderful marriage, probably have a better marriage than you sometimes. But there is nothing inside of them that draws them to the things of the Lord because they are spiritually dead, just like we were before we trusted. And what Jesus is communicating to his guys here is you need to understand the situation. When you go out and uh, you are living a life for Jesus Christ and you are trying to to model Christ and be that salt and that light, you got to keep in mind, you're a sheep among wolves. I'm not saying that so that we all get paranoid about, oh, you know, who's gunning for us. I'll tell you who's gunning for you. Satan is. But he's got those folks that, that are just tools that are available to be used. 
And it, it, it sounds so, whoa. But, you know, that's what Jesus was saying. Can you imagine what they thought? Peter, you're a sheep going out there among the wolves. John, you're a sheep going out there among the wolves. Matthew, I mean, up until now, nobody had messed Matthew up. He was a tax collector. He always won every bargain. And it's like, Matthew, they're gunning for you. They're gunning for us. Not they, but Satan. And so you and I, we need to understand the situation. We need to be wise. And that goes on a little bit more, and there's a ton of details, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip on. Look at, look at verse 24. He, he brings up something else. He tells us to remember the relationship that we have. We, we, we are a disciple of Christ. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you are a disciple of Christ. You know, if it wasn't taken and I was going to start a denomination, the denominational name that I'd choose is Disciples of Christ. Because that's what we're called to be. I'm called to be a disciple of Christ. You're called to be a disciple of Christ. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they've, they've, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, which they had already done to Jesus, and we're going to deal with this a little bit more when he brings it back up in chapter 12, they've already said, I'm doing all this stuff in the power of Satan, in the power of Beelzebub. How much more are they going to say that about you? So therefore, verse 26 do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak it out in the light. What you hear, whispered in the ear, in your ear, proclaim it. Do not fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. I mean, the person you need to fear is God and God alone. The one who has the ability, even though he doesn't do it, he's not talking about soul sleep here. He's not talking about annihilation. He's saying the person you need to fear is him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body. And then he goes on. What is he saying there? He's saying you got to remember the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. You are a disciple of Christ. If you're here and you've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, not only are you a new creation in Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. Of course, we don't always live like it. We don't always aspire to it like we should. But that's the program we're in. That's what we signed up for. And he's going to hold us accountable for moving on. And getting there. One more element. Look down at verse 40. You know what else he says? You need to recognize this responsibility that I'm putting on you. The responsibility he was putting on them was to represent Jesus to the people. Sometime really dwell on verses 40, 41, and 42. Because what he's basically saying there is, 
you are out there representing me. And guess what? People will be held accountable for how they treat you. See verse 40? He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of the righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of the disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I mean, long story short, Jesus is saying, guys, people will be evaluated by how they treat you because you are representing me. Now, he doesn't go into detail here, but obviously, Peter, you're going to be evaluated by how well you represent me. Your job is to represent me out there, Peter. You're not out there building your reputation. You're not out there building anyone else's reputation. You're building my reputation. You are communicating my message. And as you represent me, people will be rewarded and evaluated based on how they treat you because you are representing me. Bottom line, you're representing Christ. I'm representing Christ. In that classroom, in that office, in that home, in that neighborhood, on that soccer team, you're representing Jesus Christ. And when you are representing Christ and you're being that salt and that light, I mean, he's saying God is going to hold those people accountable for how they treat you. That's how important it is. That, that, that's, the, that's, that's this role of being an ambassador for Jesus, which you are, which I am. When we trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior, not only do we enroll as a disciple, we get promoted to be a representative, an ambassador of Christ. And yeah, he, he holds us accountable for how good a job we do on it. And we do it well. He's holding those other people accountable for how they're treating us. Are they treating us like Christ? That's the system. And I think one of the things we can take away from all this is it's like we're recognizing, wow. You know, this is, this, this is huge stuff. Because these people that might be antagonistic towards me or these people who might really buy in and, and, and start sitting up and paying attention to spiritual things because of what they're seeing in me. I mean, eternity's involved in this. I mean, people's lives and eternal situation is all part of the mix because I'm there in that office, in that classroom, in that car, in that home, in that neighborhood, being Jesus to those people. I'm held accountable for how good a job I'm doing. They're held accountable to how good a job they're doing as they treat us. 
that ought to put the fear of God in all of us, that I'm there representing Christ. Here's the deal. Jesus sends us out. When he sends us out, he says, I want you to remember the situation. You're, you're going out there like a sheep and a bunch of wolves. And you need to remember. You remember that relationship we have. You're, you're my f- disciple. And remember this responsibility. It is so, so important. You know, how do you remember it? I I think one of the best ways you remember it, one of the things that keeps it right there at the front of our heads is remembering how we got the job in the first place, how we got on the team, is remembering that Christ died for us. And through that sacrifice on the cross, he provided us with that forgiveness. He took our place, and that's when we became a part of his family. So we're going to close our time by just taking a few moments to to remember that salvation that Jesus Christ has given to us. Now you might be here today and and you're not sure you got it. Uh, You know what? Let me tell you, if that's the case, this is not for you. This is not for you. And I'd love to talk to you afterwards so that I can, so that we can help you understand what's going on. But I think for many of us here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so what I want you to do in these next couple minutes as we get ready to distribute the elements and uh, Micah's going to sing, I I want you to, to think about when you trusted Jesus Christ and the new birth that Christ provided for you at that moment of salvation. So I'm going to ask the guys to come and uh, let me pray, and then we'll distribute the elements. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to just take a couple moments to remember our salvation. Father, for some of us, it was uh, a very simple process, maybe just not dramatic at all. But for some, Father, it, it was big. But Father, for any of us who have trusted Christ, it was not just life changing, it was eternity changing. And so, Father, for those of us who have trusted Christ, I pray that in these next few moments, as we think about how this bread represents the body of Christ and how this uh, juice represents the blood of Christ, I pray, Father, that we would really and truly um, just thank you for the gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.